God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. I pray you'd fill me with boldness, help me to speak with clarity, help me and everyone here to see clearly the truths of your word, and help me first and everyone here to see with humility our own lives and where we need to change. And we ask you would change us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This may not come as a surprise to you, I hope it doesn't, but we have more recorded information in January of 2022 than at any point in the history of the universe. Massive amounts of words and information are measured by what are called exabytes. Researchers tell us that if you could take the every single word that's been spoken throughout all history, all of those would add up to about five exabytes. Suffice to say, an exabyte is really big. <laughs> and these researchers also tell us that by the year 2025, five exabytes of information will be created every 15 minutes. It's a staggering information age we live in that's difficult to wrap our minds around. See, most of this is driven by complex coding written for, you know, by computers and for computers through the internet stuff I don't understand at all. Uh, but we can all understand that the information explosion is kind of difficult to wrap our minds around. And so while the world may, meet, may need many things, one thing it certainly does not need is more words. And so with such a multiplication of words, it's important for us to focus on the right words. Right? There's so many, which ones do we zoom in on? And this morning on the opening page, the very first page of the Bible, we see a clear emphasis on the very words of God. These are the words that we should focus on. So this morning, what we'll do in the next 40 minutes could be summarized into this sentence on the screen. The word of God forms and fills all creation. The word of God forms and fills all creation. And I like simple outlines, and so the outline will simply be cutting up that sentence. The word of God, point one, point two, forms and fills. Point three, you guessed it, all creation. Hopefully that's easy for us to follow. But what we'll see is that God's word is his answer to the formless and the void that we saw last week. His word is the answer to that. It's true both in the natural world and in our lives. To say it a little bit differently and borrow language from last week, he creates and then he blesses. His promises are fulfilled through his providence. All right, so let's jump in. The first point, the word of God. The word of God is right smack dab all over the very first page of the Bible. It's as foundational as it comes in what Eric read there, we heard at least 14 direct references to the voice of God or the word of God. And so we see this repetition at least 14 times telling us the central point of Genesis 1 is the creative power of the word of God. The central point of Genesis 1 is the creative power of the word of God. And when we say the word of God, it can refer to several things. It can refer to the voice of God, it can refer to Jesus Christ, 
or it could refer to the words written down in Scripture. It could refer to any of those, right? So in Hebrews 11.3, we see the Word of God referring to the voice of God. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. It refers to what God spoke into existence. Or in John 1.1, we see it referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Interestingly, tying in and showing us that in the work of creation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all involved in that work. Or we look over at Hebrews 4, and we see the Word of God being applied to the words of the Bible. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart." You see that the movement then from the voice of God to the person of Jesus to the words of the Bible where it creates, it becomes more personal in Jesus and ultimately cuts us up in the very core of our soul through the word of God recorded in the Bible. This is what the word of God is. And too often, too often we go seeking a mysterious voice of God when we already have Bible verses from God. You see, we don't need a podcast or a book or a conference to discover the supposedly lost will of God. It wasn't ever lost. We simply need to open our Bibles and hear from the living God who's already spoken. Amen? And so right from the get-go, what does Moses point out about this word of God? He points out that it is exceedingly powerful. Look back at verse 3 with me. I hope we'll kind of build this rhythm of looking back at what God says. If his words are what are really important, it would only make sense that we look back at them, would it not? Verse three, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Immediate action. God says it, it happens, right? Then you look at verse six, and there's sort of a redundancy that Moses writes in to communicate the power of God's word such that we cannot miss it. Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. Why does it say, and it was so? It says, God said it, and then he did it, and it was so. It's a redundant phrase to emphasize the creative power of the word of God, that when God speaks, it happens all the time, every time, on time. That's always how it works. And we see this echoed throughout the rest of Scripture as well. It's not an idea that's limited to the book of Genesis. You might turn to Psalm 33, reading verses 6 and 9. We read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. You see, we read that the whole universe came into existence by the word of God. It didn't evolve. It wasn't some primordial soup that was gooey and warm and watery and something popped out. No, God spoke it into existence out of nothing. In the same way that God spoke the universe into existence out of nothing, we read of how he creates a people to follow him in the New Testament. Romans 4, listen to what it said. God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is what the word of God does. 
It gives life instantaneously to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. What a powerful word of God this is. But it's not just powerful. Moses also tells us that the word of God creates that which is good and beautiful. So you heard in the the reading from Eric a second ago, a repetition, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. You heard that over and over, right? Some of you may know that in the Bible, the number seven is often a number of completion. And so Genesis 1 says, and it was good, six times. And on the seventh time, look back at verse 31. You might need to turn the page like I do. Verse 31, this is the, there's been seven times it was good. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Seven, completion. You see, there's individually good things being created, God forming and filling the universe. And once it finally is all created and it's working together the way it's intended to, oh, it's very good. I want you to imagine a holiday gathering and you're preparing for it and there are good parts. You're planning who can be there. You're starting to set up the decorations. You're dreaming about your favorite dessert. Maybe you've lit a candle or two and you're starting to smell the goodness of what this gathering is gonna be. You've thought about the gifts that you're gonna give to someone and you're filled with joy about getting to give them. There's all these good elements coming around But there's nothing like the moment when everybody walks in the door and you're gathered around and the house is loud and you're laughing with jokes and you're smelling the ham and the apple pie and the pumpkin pie and everything coming together and you sit at the table like, oh, this is very good. This is how it's supposed to be. And in a very small way, we've all experienced the desire for that family gathering where it doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. It's an echo in our lives, a longing for, oh, I long for it to be like it was in Genesis 1 when everything was very good because God's word always creates that which is good and beautiful, and it brings us back to longing for that. In our cultural moment, this is incredibly important to remember because our world says that the Bible is ugly and oppressive and hateful. And despite this constant messaging, we must remember that the word of God doesn't use its power for oppression, no, but to create that which is truly good and truly beautiful. It's exactly what we're told here. And so this this picture of the word of God, the creative word of God that forms and fills the whole universe and everyone in it is central to how we think about the gathering of the church, right? This morning, there's already been a minimum of five scripture readings before I step up to preach because it's the word of God that has the power. It's why for the last several weeks, I've been pushing you to grab those scripture journals to sit down and read the Bible with somebody because it's the word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not to disparage other books or other podcasts or talks or any of that. It's just to say, ground yourself most fundamentally in the word of God. That's why we practice expositional preaching where we take as the starting point, what does God say and let's apply that to our lives instead of starting with, What's my felt need, and how can I find a Bible verse that I might be able to apply to it? Because the power's in the word of God. 
And so, friend, I just ask you, this morning, do you want power in your life to see a transformation from ugliness in your life to beauty? Do you want to see a transformation from chaos to order, from darkness to light? Do you want to see a transformation from brokenness to healing? Then tether yourself to the creative power of the word of God. This is how it's always been working. And so we see that nothing in the world is more foundational than rightly knowing God through his word. And what does it do? It forms and it fills. That's the second point. The word of God forms and fills. Stated differently and borrowing last week's language, it creates and it blesses. God's promises are fulfilled through his providence. And in this beginning week of creation, the first six days we read about, there's a striking uh, symmetry and a parallelism that I think is clear that Moses and, and God intends for us to see that God will both form and fill all of creation. So we see on the chart, day one, God forms light itself. He speaks, let there be light, and there was light. And then in day two, he forms the sea and the sky, and he separates them. He's forming these things. And then in day three, he's forming dry land and plants. And so there's a formative aspect to the first three days of creation and then when you get to the second three, he goes and he starts to fill. So on day four, there's light that fills the universe through the sun, moon, and stars. And then there's the sea and the sky that have been formed, and God fills them with fish and with birds and all sorts of teeming creatures throughout, some of which we've still not discovered. We don't even know the full depths of how he filled it, right? And then in the sixth day, he forms and then he fills the land with animals and with humans. It's a beautiful work of God where he's forming and filling. He's preparing by creating and then blessing. There's a parallelism, a structure here that Moses intends for us to see. And when I read through this account, there's a certain number of questions about the how that sort of pop up in my mind. And maybe you wonder those, and it's kind of hard for me to honestly, go past those how questions. I, I, I wonder things, maybe, maybe you've wondered these. I say, how was there light without the sun, moon, and stars? Or if there were plants on day three, how did they exist without the heat and the light of the sun for photosynthesis on day four? Like, I don't know, maybe I'm weird. I'm the only one that asks those questions. But, but I wonder these things, right? And, and the thing that I've got to remind myself, and I think we need to remind ourselves, is if God is creatively powerful enough to form the entire thing out of nothing at all, why must he be bound by the physical laws that I can presently observe? Right? And I'm submitting him to my conceptions of what the world must be like, and I'm trying to form a God in my image rather than let the voice of the Lord speak and say, I'm going to have faith-seeking understanding, not demand that he explain himself fully on my terms before I take a step of faith. It's an important lesson for us there, faith-seeking understanding. Some have asked about the days. What kind of days were these? Right? Were they six Literal, standard 24-hour days? Were they long ages? Was there all sorts of things? And there's lots of questions on this, right? 
And it's important that we recognize here that certain issues are certainly more important than others. And this is an important issue, although not as important as some others. And conservative theologians and faithful scholars throughout the centuries have had differing views on this. In fact, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people who understand this passage a little differently than me that have helped me to read my Bible better. So it's important that we listen well. The key question that we have to ask on this particular topic is, is my position formed by the written word of God or is my position based on trying to make my Christian faith more palatable to cultural pressures? That's what I have to ask myself. Is my position based on the word of God or some other external force where I want my faith to seem more palatable? Some of you are looking at me like, Justin, you haven't actually answered the question yet. Yes, I know. I think it means six literal 24-hour days. Here's why. Three quick reasons from the passage. I don't mean to get overly technical on you. Um, Some of you know the Hebrew word for day, that word is yom. That word day, it sometimes means a long period of time, sometimes means 24 hours, sometimes means less than 24 hours. So that's where some of the debate comes from. But when you attach a cardinal number, day one, day two, to that, it always means 24-hour periods of time. So that's an argument from what Genesis says. I believe it's six literal 24-hour days. Here's a second one. There's a grammatical device that's used in Hebrew that is used in Hebrew narrative but it's not used in Hebrew poetry. So we know Genesis was originally written in Hebrew, and so we're trying to understand it in that initial language. There's a device used in Hebrew narrative that's not used in Hebrew poetry, and what it implies or communicates is a sequential chronology. This happened, and then this, and then this, and then this. So for example, in Joshua chapter one, where Joshua is installed as the new leader of the Israelite people, clearly a narrative telling history, this Grammatical device shows up four times. In Joshua 2, where Rahab hid the spies, clearly telling historical narrative, this grammatical device shows up 20 times. In Genesis 1, this device to show a sequential chronology is used 51 times. That's why one of the reasons I think this is six literal 24-hour days. Maybe a third reason you would look over at Exodus 20, where Moses refers back to the creation week and applies it to a basic work week and says, hey, this this pattern that we're living in, oh yeah, it's like that. Work for six, rest for one, seems to imply a regular week. Maybe some of you are here though and you think, man, Justin, those aren't my questions. I'm not so concerned about whether there was, you know, plants before the sun or how long the days were or anything like that. I'm not sure I believe the Bible in the first place. So what the Bible says is not necessarily my concern. Hasn't modern science disproved all of this? And aren't we kind of wasting our time this morning? And just say to you, friend, no, it hasn't. I've spent extensive time and the researching and and diving into this really for my own benefit because I want to know the answers. And what I found is the best evidence from science and from philosophy and from history All three disciplines, and and many others, but those are the ones I focused on the most, all point to the truth of Christianity. And so when I read prominent authors, prominent scholars, you know, Stephen Hawking or Richard Dawkins or Lawrence Krauss, guys like those, and I'm, I'm trying to understand their arguments and hear what they have to say, 
what I find is that they're almost entirely starting with the assumption that science will explain everything. And when they get to something that their model can't explain, they simply say, oh, my, I'll, I'll develop a model later that will explain it. And if that's the assumption, the starting point, then what you begin to realize is it's not really science driving your conclusions. It's a prior faith commitment that actually inhibits you from pursuing the evidence wherever it leads. Because you have to come back to, oh, my naturalistic science will one day explain this. Now, I understand if, if you love Stephen Hawking or Lawrence Krauss or Richard Dawkins or any of those guys, like, that's not necessarily fully compelling to you. But I would say, I mean, I'd love to get together and talk. Like, let's talk after the service. Let's grab coffee or lunch. And the, the pursuit of knowledge and truth in these things, I love and would love to have that conversation with you. I'd love to. One of the things I told you last week is that Genesis is a historical narrative that makes a theological argument. It's a historical narrative that makes a theological argument. Let me show you a couple of the theological arguments embedded in this creation week. So think about day one and day four. God creates light, he forms it, and fills the universe with the sun, moon, and stars. What is God telling us? Well, according to Lamentations 3, where the Bible interprets the Bible, it tells us what it means. It says it's a reminder that every time the sun comes up, it's a reminder that God is not only powerful and distant, but loving and near. That his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what Jeremiah would write in the book of Lamentations. So it's, it's almost like God gives us an immersive worship experience in the universe. That there are days in our lives that feel like this weekend, are there not? It's colder than I want, it's rainier than I want, and the clouds are thicker than I want. Have you experienced those? Man, I sure have. And yet, even in the cold and the rain, in the cloud cover, there's still the sun coming up where the day is lighter than the night and it's warmer than it was at 2 a.m. And God's giving you a reminder, I may seem distant, but I'm not. My love will never fail. I'm not just a powerful distant force that can speak everything into existence out of nothing. No, I'm also near and I love you and I care for you. And if you can be sure that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning, you can be sure that I love you and I am with you and I am for you. Now, that's a whole other way to see a sunrise. Not just the beauty of the orange and the purple streaks throughout the sky. I love those. But a far more personal and tender reminder that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. His love endures forever. How about day two? And I'm not going to do this every single day. It would take us too long. Day two and day five correspond, right? He forms the sea and the sky, and then he fills it. Look at day five in, in your uh, copy of the Bible. Verse 21 is important for us to note this. And there's, there's a slightly redundant part of verse 21 that I think is a critical to understanding what it means. Verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures... Pause. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Just remember that phrase, the great sea creatures. And every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Here's my question. God says he filled the sky with all the birds, 
all the winged creatures, and the sea with every swarming thing that swarms. Why does he also say the great sea creatures? Is that not a bit redundant? Wouldn't it be included in all the things that swarm in the sea? I would think so. So maybe there's an argument to be made. What's he saying? The word creature, Hebrew word tenin, is a little bit difficult to translate. Sometimes it means monsters. Sometimes it's translated great creatures. Sometimes serpent. Sometimes dragon. So we're seeing it for the first time here in Genesis 121. Fast forward to Exodus 7. If you're familiar with the story, uh, Moses before Pharaoh. Moses has his staff. They're trying to see who's the real God. Let's have show and tell on a cosmic stage. He takes his staff, he throws it down, it turns into a snake. And Pharaoh's magicians take their staffs and they throw them down and they turn into snakes and Moses' snake eats their snake. Do you know what word is used to describe those? Tanin, same one, 121, the great sea creatures. And then in Ezekiel 29, this same word, tanin, the great creatures, is applied to Pharaoh. It says, Pharaoh is the great creature. And what God is saying in Genesis 1 is, there are all kinds of great creatures that you might fear. It might be a powerful king. It might be a beast that terrifies you. Think of the ancients, seafarers, and the great beasts of the sea that would scare the snot out of them. The PG version there. And they're saying, hey, we have to make peace with these great creatures, otherwise our lives will be a mess. And God's saying, no, you don't. I rule over them. I made them. I stand above them. And anything that you seek from a lesser God, it cannot deliver on its promises. I'm the one who rules over them because I'm the creator is what God is saying. And so you think through this and you think, man, we're actually not that different than these ancient people. We may not worship the exact same things that they did, but we give our lives to our own tanin, our own great creatures that we think can deliver us from our present state. We create our own gods and give our lives to them because we think they can deliver on their promises. The gods we create unfortunately, are always over-promising and under-delivering. That's a bad way to live your life. Don't over-promise and under-deliver for your boss. That will not go well for you. But that's what our lesser gods do. And so we lay our money on the proverbial altar, and we offer sacrifices to get what we want and get it right now, because we've put ourselves at the center. We are the great creatures, we say. Isn't that why Prime is so popular? Like, I have to have it right now. I mean, goodness gracious, last night I was ordering pizza from Arnie's, and their online ordering system was down, and I started to get irritated. Like, are you telling me I actually have to pick up my phone? I started to laugh. Like, man, I am a knucklehead here. Like, what is going on? Like, I want it right now. I don't even want to have to, I don't even have to pick up my phone. I can just say, hey, Siri, call Arnie's. And that's not fast enough. We all do this, guys. Puts ourselves at the center. If I get what I want and I get it fast enough, then I'll be okay. I'll be fulfilled. That's what I've got to figure out. And so we do this in all sorts of other ways, though. Through eating disorders, we pursue an image of ourselves that we think 
will be satisfying and how others think of us and how we think of ourselves. And by overworking, we sacrifice our families for a degree of financial security, thinking that that will provide what we need. Maybe we seek it in a relationship, romantic one, relationship with our parents or with a wayward child, and we'll give everything because we've idolized that relationship. And if we could just have that, it'll be okay. And God's saying, no, I stand above all of these things. I've created all of them, and you've got to find your meaning in me. And if you don't want to take my word for it, that's fine. How about I tell you about Tom Brady and what he had to say about it. I see Dan with the Colts jersey. I know this is sort of taboo to quote a patriot here in Indiana. But if anybody has achieved everything there is to achieve, it would be him. And listen to what Brady says. He says, why do I have these Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream. My life is really good. Me? I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I've done it. What else is there for me? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Guys, if you don't want to listen to me, that's fine. But listen to Tom. <laughs> because the pursuit can be thrilling for a while. It really can. I don't want to minimize that. It is exciting to chase down your dreams and think that when you conquer this thing or that thing, it'll be there. But I promise you, it's going to leave you empty. The pleasure, the image, the financial security, that relationship, they cannot satisfy you. And at the end of the day, every single person is forming and filling their life with something. And you and the entire universe was created to be formed and filled by the word of God. And you could try to form it and fill it with good things like working hard and caring for those you love. Or you can try to form and fill your life with bad things that deep down you know you shouldn't be pursuing. But at the end of the day, that actually doesn't really matter because if you're primarily allowing your life to be formed and filled by anything besides the word of God, you're going to be left empty, joyless, and frustrated. See, thus far, we've said that the central point of Genesis 1 is the creative power of the Word of God. We've said it's powerful in forming and filling everything in the universe. We've said it conquers ancient idols as well as modern idols that we build our lives around. And lastly, it's important that we see that the Word of God forms and fills all creation. That's the third point, all creation. You see, what, what Moses is, is telling us in the acorn of Genesis. You remember we said that last week, Genesis is like an acorn. It's seed form of everything we'll see in the rest of the Bible. What he's telling us here is that God forms and fills not just in the creation week, but you yourself as an image bearer of God. And throughout the rest of scripture, we see this acorn growing into a sprawling oak tree, showing us how God's word is supposed to form and fill us. We're told in the New Testament that the word of God first forms you as a Christian, it creates Christians. Look at what 1 Peter 1 has to say. You have been born again. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. It formed you. 2 Corinthians 4, if you're a Christian, notice this. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? He, Paul ties it all the way back to creation. God who shone the light in the darkness, where there was not a ready audience, God's word creates a ready audience. This should give you great confidence in your own life and in your evangelism to go proclaim the word of God because it's not like there was a universe crying out to be created. It was God who said, I'm gonna do it. So proclaim his word and let him do his work. Somebody should say amen there. But the word of God doesn't just form you. It also goes on to fill you. It's been said the Bible is the traveler's map the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. That to say, it's at the center of everything you need to live as a Christian. It fills you. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself as a pastor, aren't there so many other things that feel more important or more powerful to bring change in my life? Well, what I really need today is 20 more minutes of sleep. What I really need today is the kids to leave me alone for just a minute. What I really need today is the boss to get off my back. What I really need today is, you know how you answer that. And usually, we don't answer with, I need the word of God to form me and fill me today. And so it's important that we remember just how powerful the word of God is to create that which is true and beautiful in our lives. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon out in London 200 years ago said it this way, and this should be a great encouragement if you feel like the darkness is too thick. Listen to what he said. No mind is so desperately set on mischief, so resolutely opposed to Christ, that it cannot be made to bow before the power of the words of God. Oh, that we used more the naked sword of the Spirit. I'm afraid we keep this two-edged sword in a scabbard and somewhat pride ourselves that the sheath is so elaborately adorned. What's the use, use of the sheath? The sword must be made bare, and we must fight with it without attempting to garnish it. Tell forth the words of God. Tell them forth. To yourself, to your friends, to your neighbors who aren't yet ready to hear, because the word of God doesn't find a ready audience, it creates a ready audience. And as I know that, and I say that, I think back to different seasons of my life where it was difficult to believe in the creative power of the word of God. I think of times when I was really weary as a Christian. I wonder if that's you this morning. Man, Justin, I just, I just feel tired as a Christian. I feel weary. You know what Satan does to us when we're weary? He comes in and he lies, and he twists God's word, and he says, if you go to this book, do you know what you'll find? You'll find rules that'll beat you down, that'll exhaust you. You'll find God as a hard-driving master that you can never please. You can't go here for life. And yet, what do we find? Rest for our souls, Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight. If you're a weary Christian, Matthew eleven twenty eight should be your calling card. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Amen. 
Guys, I think of times in my life where I was a wayward Christian. Maybe that's you this morning. You're here. You're online. And if the people around you knew the things you've been thinking and doing and saying this week, they wouldn't be looking at you like they do right now. You know that. Maybe that's you. And what does Satan do? Satan, again, twists God's word as he always does. He says, if you go to this book and you're honest with where you've been, you're going to find condemnation and judgment and wrath. So you better keep it quiet. You better cover it up. You can't let anybody know. And yet you find when you open the pages of Scripture, wonderful words of life, you need to go to Romans 8, 1, if you are in Christ. It says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, man, that's good news. That is good news. I think of times in my life when I was a lazy Christian. I just wasn't pursuing God like I was supposed to. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't involved in my church not really pursuing intentional family discipleship. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're watching online, you stayed up till Netflix, watching Netflix till 2 a.m. You know you should be here, you felt guilty and turned it on. I don't know where you're at. But what is, how does Satan twist God's words when we're being lazy as Christians? I know what he does for me is he takes it and he says, let me twist God's love. Say, you don't have to work hard at being a Christian. You can just follow Jesus. It's all of grace. It's all mercy. He loves you however you are. You don't have to worry about that. You're good. Friend, you might need to go back to Hebrews 12 and look at what that passage says. It says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. See, Paul... Maybe not Paul. Whoever wrote Hebrews 12 says the path to healing is by striving towards godliness. Yes, it's all of grace. But we got to work at it too. It takes effort. It goes on to say strive for peace and for the holiness with which without no one will see the Lord. Maybe you need to cling to that and say, man, I just, I got to get serious about time in the word of God because that's where the power is to be with the people of God, worshiping through the spirit of God, the only living God. Don't listen to Satan's lies. And maybe you're here, this be my last category here, maybe you're here and you think, Justin, I'm not a weary or a wayward Christian, I'm not a lazy Christian, I'm not a Christian. What does this mean for me? Satan is speaking to you as well. He wants to twist God's words and say, you're not God's type. You don't fit in with the religious crowd. These aren't your people. And God doesn't really want you. Because what's in the the closet of your past is too dark for it to ever be brought out. You've not cleaned yourself up yet. You never will. Friend, go to Luke chapter 5 and discover the very words of Jesus where he says, those who are well have no need of a physician. (laughs) You don't call the doctor when you're feeling great. You call him when you're sick. And Jesus says, I'm the doctor for your soul. And so bring me your diseases. Bring them to me. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, 
but the sinners to repentance. Jesus says, that's who I'm here for. I'm here for you. Come and cry out to me. The word of God forms and fills all creation. The material universe, everything we can see, everything we can't, every single person in the universe, the parts of them you can see and the parts of them you can't, including yourself. Friends, there are all sorts of ways that you might need to take this message of what Genesis 1 says and apply it to your life. Or maybe you need to commit to a Bible reading plan. Man, I just gotta get in God's word. Doesn't have to be legalistic, doesn't have to be checkmark Christianity. But there is power in God's word, and it will change you. Maybe you need to commit to memorizing God's word. I just, I stink at memorization. No, you don't. You stink at review. Anybody can memorize. Anybody can memorize, some more than others. But if you review and you meditate on the word of God, it will change your life. Maybe you need to just come out to First Peter B.I. study tonight. Like I just need to study God's word, walk verse by verse with other brothers and sisters that can link arms with me and help me follow Jesus. Maybe you're discouraged in your evangelism and you just need to sit down and write out by hand, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and God who said, let there be light, shown the light in the darkness, has caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to shine into our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. And pray that over the people you know who aren't Christians yet and claim the confidence in the power of God and not your own persuasiveness. Maybe you need to do all of those and you just need to do it with somebody. I mean, I'd encourage like students, kids, lunch today, grab your parents and say, hey, how are we doing this as a family? Our family needs to be committed to the power of the word of God to form and fill us and to shape us. There's all kinds of things we can do there. I wonder if you've ever even submitted yourself to the word of God yet. For the very first time, you see Jesus Christ, the word became flesh, lived and dwelt among us, lived the perfect life we didn't live, couldn't live, died the gruesome death we should have died, and you need to submit yourself to his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can know God. Maybe that's your action point. But friends, for all of us, it's critical that we remember we don't look at the Bible for knowledge's sake. We look at it because it points us to Jesus who transforms our souls. He's the one who said, John, John 5, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but they themselves bear witness about me. It's all pointing us to Jesus. So what we're gonna do here, we're gonna go to communion in just a minute. If you're new, let me explain it to you. We'll take a second of silence, maybe 30 seconds. And I just want you to reflect on the creative power of the word of God that forms and fills everything in the universe. At the beginning, we prayed that God would give us eyes to see his truth and humility to change where we need to. Talk to him about where you need to change. And remember Jesus Christ, the word became flesh who came to you to be near to you so that God is not merely distant and powerful, but is also near and close and loving, and he is the one that will transform your life. Remember him and his sacrifice on the cross. When you've had a little bit of silence, you're free to take communion on your own, and then we'll close with a song and with some prayer. Let's pray together.
God in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word. Your creative and powerful word to create the good and the true and the beautiful in us where it did not exist. To shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. I ask right now for myself and every single person here that you would give us eyes to see your truth and humility to see where we need to change. And to cry out to you for forgiveness and to take an action step of following you as the only giver of life, the only giver of good things, the only one that can satisfy and sustain us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.